0: Galatians chapter 2 this evening, that was a beautiful song, done exceptionally well, and uh, I enjoyed the words tremendously. Sometimes we sing through the hymnals, and I'm sure I'm not the only one guilty of this, but we sing through the hymnals rather, uh, like like it's a rather normal practice, and we just kind of sing the words and Honestly, we only know the words to about half of them. We kind of mix the verses up sometimes. I was finding myself up here this evening doing that, like, Sean, why do you pick the most obscure hymnals? Uh, but, but honestly, when a song is done like that, it helps you really focus in on what the words are. And, and you almost throw your, your heart and your mind into a, a, a time of worship and meditation as they sing that song. And I've sang that song many times, but the way they did that, I, I truly enjoyed that. Uh, how wonderful the love of God is for us! And tonight I, I want to speak to you out of the Book of Galatians, chapter two, verse number twenty. You have most certainly heard this passage of Scripture. I try not preaching from the the, the candy sticks or the sugar sticks of the Bible, just because you've heard most of those most of the time. But tonight I find it. Um, absolutely necessary and the Lord kind of led me to this passage and I, I want to share with you something that's been on my heart and been on my mind. A few weeks ago when I knew that I was going to be preaching this message, I, I, I told Amy what I was going to be preaching three weeks ago. See, I've been doing a series in the youth department about King Hezekiah and King Hezekiah was a tremendous man, took over uh, the the nation of Judah there actually and, and uh, he brought it to a place where the Lord blessed it richly and he took it out of what his father had gotten it into trouble. He brought it out of that and, and I, there was a message that I preached three, four weeks ago and it was about some things that the devil will make excuses when good times of spiritual success happen basically was the crux of the message and I told Amy several weeks ago, That's the one I'm going to preach. Don't normally do that, but that's the one I'm going to preach. And then just this week, the Lord has been turning my heart away from that message to the message that I'll preach tonight. And I believe this message is applicable to revival, certainly, but there will not be much mention of revival tonight. So we begin reading in chapter number 2 of Galatians, verse number 20. The Bible says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And if you were to stop reading there, your mind would chase itself in circles trying to figure out what he means. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Then he goes on to say, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you meet with us now. Lord, I request once again, so humbled by the honor to preach your word, but Lord, quite intimidated to do so. Lord, I ask that your spirit would quicken me, would would move in my heart, and Lord, you've placed this message in my heart, and I pray that it would be preached, completely submitted to you, with no uh, ideas of where the message is to head, or, or preconceived notions of what I want to accomplish, Lord, I wholly submit to you this evening in the pulpit. Lord, I ask that every person in this room would try to do the same. That when the direction of the message is announced, they would not tune me out or focus on something else. But Lord, I ask that every heart would begin to search your word for what you might be trying to do in their life. Lord, I ask once again for your help in the pulpit. In Jesus' precious and powerful name, amen. Now, one might think, hearing the term revival, that it has to do with the Christian life. But I would rather say it has much more to do with the Christian's death. You see, a while back I went to a a, a beautiful restaurant. Many of you have probably been there. It's the Riata. It's downtown Fort Worth. I don't think it's quite five-star food, but it's... a it's definitely five star for this redneck. And it's, uh, it is a higher end food. It's a little bit more expensive. And, and I took my wife there on a, like an anniversary or a birthday type celebration. And I like a good steak. I just don't think you can beat a steak. I know there's some in the room that enjoy a different type of food as their favorite. For instance, Brother Sean Odell, I know he likes t- uh, sushi, and, and I like sushi. He took me to eat sashimi, and, and that is essentially a filleted goldfish laid on your plate, and they just charge you for it. And uh, I saw the PetSmart tag on the bottom of it, so it didn't, you know, I was like, I don't know what this is cracked up to be, but uh, he, he took me, and, and I enjoy certain types of sushi, and, and I enjoy just about as much as anybody a really good hamburger, but for me, and this is certainly probably because of my upbringing, I enjoy a steak more than anything else. And you can give me a steak and potatoes and I'll just die right there and go to heaven and uh, I'll be remembering that meal throughout eternity. But I love steak, so that was one of the reasons we went to the Riata. But another thing that I'm a huge fan of, given the fact that I'm an outdoorsman, I enjoy going hunting and fishing, I enjoy eating wild game that is professionally prepared. Now, I enjoy... So mom qualifies as professionally prepared. So anytime you want to professionally prepare some wild game, I'll come over, mom. So, uh, uh, but, but I, I like seeing the different takes on wild game and at the Riata, there, they have barbecue quail and, and they're, they're just basically the, the quail have been plucked. They put barbecue, uh, barbecue style sauce on them. They don't bread them, they lay them out, and and essentially they're grilled, laid there on your plate, and you say, that sounds awful. And let me just tell you, it is awesome. My wife does not love wild game. In fact, in most cases, she will not try it. I think maybe I've made mention of that recently to the demise of my relationship with my wife. But she doesn't love wild game, but I convinced her to try that, and she really, really enjoyed it. But one thing that I'm learning about these restaurants that are higher end is, and this is difficult for me because I'm one of the type of people. I'm weird. I only eat one portion at a time. In other words, I if 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 I have a steak, I eat all the steak, and then I move to the potato, weird. and I systematically work. Hey, that's what they're there for. I mean, have you ever seen the portion plates? They don't want you to mix them. They want you here. But, but that's the way I am. I know that's a little uh, different than most. But what I'm learning about these higher-end restaurants is they make everything so that it is to be eaten with the other thing. For instance, that barbecue quail is not just barbecue quail. It is barbecue quail on cheddar uh, jalapeno grits. Oh, man. Well, let's just all pray and we'll go home and we'll eat something. I'm getting hungry thinking about it. But I loved it. My wife even, I, I told her, try the barbecue quail. And she said, yeah, that's pretty good. And I said, now try it with the grits. And she's from the South. So she can, she can embrace some grits, amen. And, and so when you put that quail in and you eat those grits together the 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 taste is only exemplified they They work with each other in, in almost a harmony to make the bite better. Now, the other day, I had the opportunity after the men's uh, uh, or really the church dove hunt to make my own wild game, and I was going to make it as close to the riata as I could. I had fifteen dove there, and that makes thirty dove bites and you, uh, one person can't eat that or I know I can't so I made about seven dove but I don't know how to make cheddar jalapeno grits do you I I don't so you know I got the second best thing I could find I went to Dollar General and I found instant mashed potatoes that were uh, uh, they were seasoned though they weren't just the normal ones they had like bacon and, and and they were fully loaded before you even got them so they're pre-seasoned, pre-made. All you got to do is add water and a little heat. And there my, as close as I could make it, was dove breasts with uh, uh, instant potatoes. And I didn't know what to do for a roll at the Rihanna. They have these really delicious rolls and bread. So what I did is I went and got a Mrs. Baird loaf of bread, just a white piece of bread, and, and a Dr. Pepper. And there my professionally made wild game meal was. You yeah, know, I don't understand, and let me just say, it was not as good as the Riatas. <laughs> I don't understand necessarily how all the food works together. For instance, I know that there's sweets and there's savories and there's salty and there's bitterness and they all kind of work together there. I know, th- I know there's a science to it. I don't understand it all though. But just because I don't understand it does not mean that I don't enjoy partaking in it. One of the reasons that Christians get so scared away from committing to the lifestyle in which the Bible asks them to live is because it's so paradoxical in nature. Some of the words, like just our scripture passage tonight, it says, I am crucified with Christ, but I'm living now more than I've ever lived. It just doesn't make any sense. And so our lack of understanding on some of these issues, some of these scriptures, maybe keep us from living the life that God wants us to live. Tonight I'm going to talk to you briefly about whether you are living to die or dying to live. I want to give you three traits of a life that is dying to live or living to To die, First of all, a person that is dying to live realizes their life is not their own. You see, here's the difference between a person who is living to die and a person who is dying to live. A person who is living to die is a person whose whole life culminates at death. Now, no doubt you're familiar with these type of people. You know them. They're the type of people who are a success in this life they work and they they sweat to gain a living only to see that living left for their children to fight over. How many families have we seen apart because their father left them something only to watch the kids who previously had good relationships tear each other apart like vultures over their own inheritance? And there a father is and he works his whole life to maybe give his family some type of security or some type of comfort so that his peers may think that he's a success or, or maybe he worked at the electric company for 35 years and he had the ability to retire and, and, and he worked all of that time and his life culminates at death. And I don't care who you are, whether your name's George Washington or whether your name's Joe Schmoe, you're buried the same way. The grave is the ultimate equalizer. But a person who is uh, living to die is a person who realizes that a life lived without total submission to Jesus Christ is worthless. A life that is recognizing the fact that This life is not theirs to live. And this life, we only have just a short time on this earth. And you can make all the political differences you want. And you can make all the occupational differences you want. But if you're not making a spiritual difference for Jesus Christ, everything you've done in your life will vanish away at the graveside. But a person who is dying to live is a person who lives their life totally submitted to Jesus Christ. And that person realizes that their life is not their own. Verse number 20, Paul says this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And then he goes on to say this, Yet not I. You see here, Paul is making a distinction of persons. He is saying that there are two people in my life, now that I've been saved, who call the shots. There's me, and he terms that by saying, there's I. Uh, I li- could live my life, but the other person living for me is Jesus Christ. Amen. And Paul basically paints this battle. He says, I'm living now more every day that I crucify my flesh, and I crucify the affections thereof, and every morning I wake up and submit my life to Jesus, and he says, so I'm living more now than I've ever lived, but he says, yet not I. Amen. I am not the one living, Christ is the one living. Friend, today what we have to realize is there is a complete distinction between what you want for your life and what Jesus Christ wants for your life. And in most cases, what you want for you and what God wants for you are total polar opposites. You say, Brother Andrew, I've been raised in church and I know me and I I enjoy pleasing God and I'm trying to live for God. But you see, every day you battle this type of mindset and this type of person. The Bible says in Proverbs 14 that there is a way which seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Uh, In Proverbs it also terms it the ways of destruction. You see, you battle this type of mentality. Jeremiah 17 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see, even though you're saved, you still have a way which seems right to you. And even though you're saved, your heart is still deceitful above all things. So every day what you have to do is you have to get up and you have to identify what you want for you and what Christ wants for you. And Paul was saying, I'm living now more than I've ever lived Because I'm able to accurately identify what Paul wants and what Christ wants. There's a distinction of persons, but secondly, there's a difference of priorities. He not only says, yet not I, but he goes on to say, but Christ liveth in me. Have you ever, and maybe maybe I'm different than you, but... There are certain places in town that I like to go eat, and I, I feel like Brian Cohn because I'm talking a lot about food. I don't know if... Uh, it seems like every illustration I hear Brian Cohn uses is food. It's usually pretty effective because by the end of the meal, you're like, let's get invitation over so we can go grab a bite to eat, amen? But I don't know about you, but I, I have certain places that I like to go hammer when I go. Now, I don't eat that much. Most people go with me and they see that I leave a little food on my plate. And, and In fact, I, I feel bad about it in most cases because I feel wasteful. And I've often asked myself, what is more sinful? And maybe this is an ethics and etiquette situation, but what is more sinful, overeating or being wasteful? And I walk the fine line between both most of the times. And so uh, I have certain places, though, that I save up hunger for. For instance, hibachi, the Burleson hibachi, I will hurt myself when I go in there. In fact, uh, we've actually had a visitor been coming to church that I invited at the hibachi table shouting over the flame, and I said, hey, we go to Joshua Baptist Church. I'm, I'm, I usually don't advertise I'm one of the pastors just so we have a fighting chance in the invitation, you know. But I invited her, and she's been coming to church, so that's good, but I I really eat the lightest lunch possible when I know I'm going to hibachi that evening. I'll, I'll eat like a saltine cracker or whatever. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll drink like a sip of water as much as I don't like water. Because I know when I go to hibachi what I'm going to order. I'm going to order that steak, not the sirloin. I'm going to order the New York strip. And you say, "Woo, man, you're living high on the hog. Amy, she's making money. You don't... I don't know. I think she's got side jobs or whatever. But, but I order that New York strip, and then I get double rice. And they recently figured out my gig because they started charging more for that. And I did not appreciate that. <laughs> vegetables aren't that expensive, but rice can't be more expensive than vegetables. Just saying here. But, but there I, I get double rice, the, the, that New York strip. And they put that, they always make a joke like Dr. Pepper sauce. It's not Dr. Pepper sauce, but sounds good enough to me. And all of this is so good. I don't care too much for the soup or the salad. It's okay. I eat it. But man, when that rice comes out, whoo, that steak comes out. And I didn't know that Japanese knew how to make a steak as good as those folks know how to make a steak. I thought that was kind of a Texas deal. They make a good steak, man. I'll go in there and I'll hurt myself. And then by the end of the meal, they bring me one of those little mints. I'll look at Amy and I love those mints, but I'll look at her and I'll say, If I put anything else in this belly, it ain't going to be a good night. I asked the waitress, ma'am, do you have a wheelbarrow? Present. She's like, why, why, why? You need doggy bag or something? I'm like, no. Can you take me to my car in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> I get so full because I'm I love eating at that place. You know, one of the times in Jesus's ministry, he was he was ministering to people. In fact, this is right after the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And, And he talks to her, and she's actually out finding people, and she's saying, come see a man who's who's showing me things I've never seen. He knows me even better than I know myself. And while she's out inviting, the Bible details a story for us where the disciples come up to Jesus, and they say, "Uh, you need to eat. And Jesus has been traveling. He's been hustling, trying to get the gospel out. And here Jesus looks at them. They're concerned for Him, and He says this. I have meat to eat that ye know not us. And they look at Jesus like he's been hoarding something in his pocket. No joke, they ask each other, has somebody else been bringing Jesus something to eat? And Jesus says, guys, my meat is doing the will of him that sent me. Look, when it comes to living a life that is wholly submitted to Christ and recognizing that your life is not your own, you can live a life where you walk away from the dinner table and say, oh, I'm so full. Every day you can prop your feet at home and you can say, I lived my life for Jesus today and it was completely satisfying. I'm completely content and I'm trying to do everything I can for my Lord and Savior. That is the peace that passeth all understanding. That is the meat of a Christian. It's living a life that is wholly submitted to Jesus and realizing that any goals that you may have can never match what the goals of God for your life are. The, a, a Christian who is dying to live for Jesus, he realizes that his life is not his own. Secondly, I want to share with you this. A Christian that is di- uh, uh, dying to live for Jesus will make his life one of self-denial. And this is not a very popular topic to preach on. They don't really ask you to come preach in churches. Hey, Brother Andrew, can you come preach a revival meeting? And the whole time I want you to preach on self-denial. That doesn't happen. But I want you to read with me in verse number 20. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. He's, He's saying... My life is better now than it's ever been. But he goes on to say, yet not I. It's not Paul that's making decisions for me. It's not me calling the shots. Christ liveth in me. But then he goes on to detail his daily struggle. And the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God. You see, the thing I love about reading Paul's writings is he made no bones about how difficult the Christian life was to live. I tell you, if you read some of these guys in the Bible, it seems like it was easy to live for God. Not, 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 it, it just you, you look at a guy like Moses and he's just such a man of God I don't know about you, but I'm somewhat discouraged when I'm like, man, I can't even muster the faith to just uh, uh, give this big offering. And there Moses is standing on the Red Sea just telling everybody to trust God. And, and sometimes these guys intimidate me. But what I love about Paul is he never made any bones. He, he knew how difficult the Christian life was. He would say things like this. The things that I want to do for God, I struggle to do them. Amen. And it seems like when I try to do right is when I find myself doing wrong. That was Paul. And here Paul is detailing for us the struggle of his flesh each and every day. If I had to liken our flesh to anything, it would be this. A pouty toddler. And I am becoming much more familiar with what a pouty toddler looks like. I don't want to, my wife's not here tonight. Uh, She said, first of all, I, I don't really care to hear the message, but second of all, Bailey's sick. And I don't want to make her mad, but the other day she was at the grocery store, and she had Bailey, she had Caitlin. I was off soul winning or praying or hunting, one of the three, I'm not sure. Real, real spiritual endeavor, I'm sure. And there Amy is... And she calls me, and I can hear Caitlin crying in the background. And she, I, I was actually preparing to go hunting. In other words, it takes three days to get ready to go leave my family for a day. So I was actually shooting the guns at the rifle range, and Amy calls me and says, Are you almost done? Because I'm at HEB, and I need you to come get Caitlin. And I said, Why? And she goes, Well, she's upset that she can't have Legos. And I'm thinking, first of all, how does she even know what a Lego is? Thank you for whoever got her that birthday present. You know, why do they make Legos so conveniently sized for a one-year-old to choke on and for you to step on in the middle of the night? I don't... But I hear my daughter in the background crying. And I'm not talking about a pain cry. That's different, right? Dad comes to the rescue and pain cries. I'm talking about a pouty cry. Like, <gasps> I want this song. I want the you know, we've got the Joshua Christian Academy bumper sticker on the car. We're members of Joshua Badges. My wife is freaking out in the middle of H-E-B and I'm over here trying to shoot a gun and I'm thinking, if you don't stop crying, Caitlin, I'm going to bring this gun over to you. No, no, no. And, and sh- introduce you to proper firearm ethics. is what. <laughs> and I was getting... So aggravated, not at Amy, at my daughter, throwing a fit. We give her anything she wants. And there she is in the middle of the store, pouting, because Mama said, no, we got to get home. And I said, Amy, hand her the phone. And Amy went to hand her the phone, and she goes... I'm in the middle of academy trying to buy ammunition for this gun. And I go, put me on speakerphone. (laughs) I was so livid. And I go, Caitlin, you listen to your mother. And if she says no, you don't whine. And when I get home, we'll have a talk about this. I was so angry. Guess what she did? kept crying and pouting cuz that's what pouty toddlers do yeah. and that's exactly how your flesh is right. when your flesh does not get its way it doesn't it doesn't ease it doesn't just go away Yet it's more annoying and more on your nerves. And it says, oh, no, pay me attention. Give me what I want. Give me what I want. And Paul said, man, I am having to live this life of a crucified Christian every single day. And I'm living it in the flesh. But he goes on to say this. He not only points out the the struggle of our flesh. He points out the victory of our faith. He says, in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. You see, God has perfectly equipped every Christian to be exactly what He asks them to be. Your flesh, no doubt, is difficult, but man, where your flesh is difficult, your faith is victorious. When your flesh is a struggle, your faith is successful. God has given you what you need to succeed, Christian. You say, how can my faith overcome my flesh? Because your faith allows you to trust the Bible and trust God when He says, greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Your faith allows you to see that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. You see, your faith allows you to understand through the goggles of the Word of God that your weapons are not carnal, but they are mighty through the pulling down of strongholds. And your flesh may be a struggle, Christian, and your Flesh may be difficult, and you may battle it day by day, but Paul says, I'm living now more than I've ever lived because my faith is stronger than my flesh. A Christian who is dying to live for Jesus will recognize their life is not their own. They will recognize that their life is one of self-denial, and finally, they will recognize their life as one of indebtedness. Indebtedness. Verse number 20, Paul concludes one of the most famous verses in all the Bible by saying this I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, notice this, who loved me. Paul is writing for a group of people to read and this may just only amaze me, but he is writing for this letter to be read in a church. He's writing so that a preacher may stand up and read this letter so that they can correct doctrinal errors. And, And there has been some doctrinal errors creep into the church at Galatia. And so Paul is writing to them, but when Paul writes verse number 20, it's almost as if nobody else is ever going to read this and he says he does not say and the life which i now live i live by the faith of the son by the faith of the son of god who loved you he does not say who loved the world, and I'm so thankful for verses like John chapter 3, verse 16 that say, For God so loved the world, and man, when I'm looking at a drunkard and I'm looking at, at someone who's really had a hard time, and they say, Brother Andrew, I don't think God could ever love me. I go to John 3 16 and I say, No, he loves everybody in the world. You're part of the world and he loved you. But Paul does not use the world here. Paul here is asking you to recognize the affection and our indebtedness because of how much he loved, not the world. Not not Jerusalem or or Samaria or, or the Jews. He is saying you're indebted to him because he loves you. Man, I think one of the most effective tools of the devil is making Christians think that they're better than they are. Pride kind of wells up in us and we say, man, I, it's been a long time since I've let old cuss words slip. Yeah, yeah. When's the last time you thought of one though? Yeah. When your toddler was in the middle of H-E-B. and <laughs> He uses a personal pronoun here. Yeah. And he says, he loved me. And the reason that I wake up every single day and crucify the affections of my flesh and crucify Paul and and I I crucify my goals and my desires and my wishes and my education and all my pursuits, I crucify all that and I lay it all at Jesus' feet and I say, Jesus, whatever you want for me today, that's what I want. And Jesus, whatever you want me to be today, that's what I want to be. He says, the reason I'm able to do that and the reason I want to do that is because... You love me. We will not have any kind of revival unless Christians reawaken to how much God loves them. It's the entire motivation for reason, for, for living the Christian life. It is the sole purpose for why a Christian gets out of bed in the morning. Oh, we may look at this world and say, oh, well, God commands me to walk straight. But fear is not near as good of a motivator as love is. See, people rebel because of fear. People accept and embrace love. The reason we're indebted, Christian, is because God loved us. The Bible says, "Herein is love. Not that we loved God. That's easy to do. You see, God is altogether lovely. God is love. He is perfect. He is pure. He is holy. He is powerful. He is all beautiful in every way. It's easy to love somebody like that. But man, it's not easy to love somebody like me, I can tell you. How many of y'all have seen those commercials on television? They come on in their animal abuse commercials, their animal rights commercials and i tell you they are the most depressing things i've ever seen in my entire life if the cowboys do win tonight which is my prayer um but if if the cowboys do win i tell you a good buzzkill, if you will watching one of those commercials right after we win boy it'll take you off the mountaintop and throw you down in the valley quick won't it you're all excited. There they are interviewing the game-winning quarterback. Dak Prescott is hopefully who they're interviewing tonight. And, uh, and you're excited about it all, and then dun, 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 all played in a minor key, and you're like, man, I'm crying already. I ain't even said nothing about a pet. <laughs> and believe me, I'm not making light of animal abuse. I, it, it, that is a terrible thing, and and if you hate animals, don't be around them. Seems like a wise decision to me. But, but I'm not making light of that. But I fear that sometimes our mindset as Christians is that we kind of compare ourselves to the, the, the dog that was beaten up by sin. And that God somehow looked down with empathy or sympathy upon us and said, oh, poor little person who's been abused by sin. No, that is not at all the picture that the Bible paints. You see, we, Christian, were the pit bulldog with blood on our face from attacking our owner. We, Christian, were against God. We were, not only, we were not abused by the world, we were part of the world. We were, the Bible tells us, children of wrath, enemies of God. We were at enmity with Him. So don't think you're this cute little puppy that's been abused. No, you were a ravaging sinner before you were saved. You hated God and everything that had to do with Him. And even if you did not feel that, your actions displayed that. Yet God looked down on you. It did not take any piano music. It did not take anybody with a sad look on their face. It took the love of a wonderful Heavenly Father to look at you and say, I will send the very best that I have to offer to show you how much I love you. Christian, if you can start to think about the depth of God's love for you, how can we not feel a little indebted? How can we, not, like Paul, not begin to realize this is our reasonable service to live for God because He died for us? Not only here does Paul point out we're indebted because of the affection, but we are indebted because of His atoning sacrifice. Look here in verse number 20, the final words. He says, And the life which I now live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, and I want you to conclude the verse with me out loud, everyone, and gave himself for me. Don't forget, Jesus came to this earth to die for you. Not only did he die for you, But he died the most horrendous death that anybody's ever died. Not only physically did it hurt, spiritually it hurt. Emotionally it hurt. Mentally it hurt. Every way that you can imagine, you say, Brother Andrew, it can't be as bad as you make it sound. No, as bad as I'm making it sound, it was infinitely worse than my vocabulary will allow me to describe. And yet Jesus laid his arm down. You want to know what the most humiliating arm wrestling match ever was? was when a centurion soldier was able to put the arm of my Savior on a cross. When Jesus was hung for everybody to mock and scoff. And for those who he had been around and worked with and taught and discipled, for those men to say, I never even knew him while he was dying for their sins. And then Paul says, don't forget the whole reason that we are to be a living sacrifice is because he was willing to be a dying sacrifice. Christian, and I, I close, I want to take you to the foot of Calvary. If you can imagine with me being there on that day, with all just a few of His followers and loyalists there at the foot of the cross, His mother and and Elizabeth and Mary Magdalene and I know John was there and just, just a select few and everybody else has just betrayed Him. And, and that's only his gallery. Everybody else is there to mock and laugh at him. You see, nobody attended for the guy on the right side of the cross. Nobody attended to see the guy on the left side of the cross. But the ones who had accused Jesus were now standing there as if they're, as if they had won a battle of some kind by getting him on the cross instead of Barabbas. I want you to stand right by His weeping mother as tears streamed down her face and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved and would often rest His head on His chest there and and, and I want you to be there with me. I want you to be there as the skies turn dark and black and, and the earth begins to quake. I want you to be there with me as as you hear the argument between the man on the right side and the man on the left side. And even the dying, the man on the left side's uh, dying breath was mocking my Savior. I want you to be there with me. And we know because Scripture tells us that Jesus looked at John and had one request. And he just said, John, you take care of my mother. If John had said no, what would you have thought about him? Well, you would obviously... How could you not say yes? He's asked you this one little simple thing, and, and, and it's not that huge of a task, but the Bible tells us that John says yes, and, and Mary became John's mother from that day forward, the Bible tells us. He took care of her like his own mother. But Christian, I want for just a moment, if you'll give me the liberty, I want you to imagine, since you're there standing beside John, I want Jesus to glance over to you and look in your eyes. What is the request that you will say no to? Is it the mission field? No, it's easy 2,000 years later to figure out in our minds what we're willing to do for God, but if you put yourself at the foot of Calvary, looking into the eyes of the precious Lamb of God who was sent to die for the sins of the world, you look at His eyes and He asks you, will you get rid of that sin that you've been harboring in your life? Dad, will you become the dad that you know you need to be? Mom, will you be a a supporter of your husband? Child, will you respect your parents? And will you do what you know what you need to do? Will you live for me at the foot of the cross? What is the answer in which you'll say no? What's that question sound like? Because as we approach revival, revival is not about giving Christians new life. It is about giving Christians the ability to enter into a death for Christ. Paul says, I die daily. Your flesh, Christian, will lead you nowhere. The Bible tells you the paths of death, paths of destruction, that's where your flesh takes you. But at the foot of the cross, Jesus Christ asks you to do anything this week whatever it may be, whether whether it's to change the way you speak, whether it's to live for Him, whether it's to become a better witness for Him, whatever it is, revival at its very essence and core is this, saying yes to Jesus because we are indebted because of His affection and because of His atoning work of Calvary.